0: You see? It's well, even it. Hello. Okay. There, there we go. So, let's start over. Hi.
1: Testing, testing. Testing, testing. Right. And I can't tell if this testing
0: Was going so well, too. Okay. Um. Hello. Okay. Now. Hello. 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 No. Okay. Okay. It's off. Okay. Um. So just by, um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. I got interested in psychology at about the same time I got interested in Buddhism, which is to say, when I was about 16 years old and looking for self knowledge. Turns out that reading psychology and Buddhism doesn't get you very far. But um, they both appealed to me. You know, I was reading psychoanalytic theory, and boy, was it over my head. But one of the things that I took from what I was reading was that um, things are not as they appear, and that one has to learn to peel back surface appearance to begin to get at what's really happening. And that kind of accorded with my own sense at the time. Um, when I was first introduced to it, there were really no resources that I had available. Um, I had some books by D.T. Suzuki and Alan Watts. And I tried to teach myself to meditate. And let me tell you, you can't do that with books from Alan Watts. And I spent a lot of time staring at candles and you know silliness like this. But um, we had, as a family, driven past a Zen temple in Chicago. I'd grown up in the suburbs. And I took note of that. And as soon as I got a driver's license, then I would start going to their uh, programs on Sunday mornings, which consisted of chanting, sitting, walking, sitting, chanting, making an offering. Very little instruction, except in the posture. Um, did some sessions with them this was Soto Zen and I did that pretty much on a more or less solitary basis for about 15 years and then in the course of writing my doctoral dissertation which was on a related topic on the nature of the self among American Buddhists uh, I wound up doing Vipassana and going to IMS and that was you know revelatory because you could talk about practice they gave you instruction, and they told you what to do and why, which was quite wonderful. Um, I wound up receiving kind of a lay ordination into Zen when I was about 19, which at the time basically meant to me that I was uh, making a commitment. It wasn't, uh, I didn't enter the priesthood, and, but it was basically saying, yeah, this makes sense to me. I'm going to stick with it. Um, And uh, whatever else I've done professionally, one of the things that's been pretty consistent is that I've spent a lot of time teaching about the application of Buddhist psychology to mental health professionals. And, um, yeah, that's about enough of that. So if I have any authority at all, it is only through longevity. i sticking with this for a long time. So let's talk a little bit about what this weekend is going to look like. Um, we're going to be spending most of our time in here. We'll do the morning sit in the meditation hall. And I want us to spend some time sitting each time we gather, but, um, it, I don't want to use the time transitioning back and forth. So we'll come and we'll sit in here, um, right after breakfast. And then, uh, after lunch, when we begin the afternoon session again, but the mornings will be in the hall. Um, what else about that? Oh, a couple other uh, housekeeping matters. There are some handouts here. Uh, they're not critical to anything. Uh, one of them is uh, the slides, but this is not going to be data-rich, so you can pick one of these up as you like. There's a, kind of a brief bibliography of uh, things that I just think are really interesting and that pertain to uh, some of the topics we'll talk about. And then after the course, you'll be sent an email with which will have some links to a number of um, other online resources. We didn't send that out in advance so that you're not, you know, scrolling on your phones, reading this stuff. Um, and what else? I don't know what else. So let's talk a little bit about the topic of suffering. And how late? How do? How long do we go tonight? Till nine. Okay. So, um, so I think every major tradition, intellectual or cultural tradition, uh, rests on some central idea or event, right? That, that's that's seminal. So, for instance, in one might argue that all of biology rests ultimately on natural selection or that almost all economic theory rests on the notion of supply and demand, right? Or Christianity, perhaps, resting on the whole notion of the crucifixion and the resurrection, right? And everything winds up being built up from these particular things. The Big Bang in physics. um, In Judaism, it's the covenant with God and the transmission of the commandments. I mean, one one could probably suggest other seminal events, but uh, in Buddhism the major, the most central axiom, if, if, there, if it can be said that there is one, is the truth of suffering. Right? The simple observation that if you're born, you're going to know it. Maybe not all the time, and maybe it's not the exclusive truth of this existence, but there is no one who takes form that doesn't experience some form of suffering. So maybe you've noticed if this happens to you. I don't know. I suspect you have. So to me it's interesting that this intractable and intimate problem of suffering is its point of departure. And this, I think, is what has led to its enduring appeal because this has remained a problem uh, for as long as humans have walked the earth. Um, The Buddhist approach to suffering, well, it's not about salvation from evil or salvation from sin. It is about salvation from suffering. And that the origin of that suffering is understood to be within us. Right? There's nothing in here that is metaphysical or theological. The appeal is always back to our own experience. And at least in the earliest forms of Buddhism, um, it was radically phenomenological that everything that is being asserted by all of the suttas, by all of the the teachings of the Buddha, are all based on um, what can be known from within. People like to speak about karma, for instance, as if it was a metaphysical principle that is extant in the universe, but really it is only referring to cause and effect within us. So the entire focus is on the world of experience as it is known and experienced. And in this respect... Then it means that the highest form of knowledge or of truth is that which can be experienced. So let's imagine a couple of different approaches to understanding suffering. One of them, we might say, is the kind of scientific approach, right? And the scientific approach is, um, first of all, rooted in what can be observed, right? What is measurable, what can be replicated. And because of that particular emphasis, ever since the time of uh, Tichner and Wundt, if these are familiar names from your Psych 101 days, they turned away from the whole notion of inner experience as being a legitimate object of investigation, because it wasn't objective. It couldn't be replicated. There was no way to do kind of third-party uh, objective assessments, because we couldn't even agree what we were looking at. So everything was then turned toward, um, toward measurables, toward what is replicable and objective, And the scientific approach generally wants to avoid inner experience because it doesn't conform to the standards of science. And psychology uh, was originally not particularly scientific at all. It was speculative. It was a kind of an armchair reflection by by philosophers until it became empirical, at which point it was turning away from inner experience. Um, But the Buddhist approach begins and ends with our own experience. And it is highly empirical. Right, it is entirely empirical, although clearly not scientific. And it's not scientific in part because it is—it's um, tendentious, and and by that I mean it's up to something. It has a particular purpose. It's not for the purpose of explaining for its own sake. You know, the purpose of most scientific knowledge is to predict, to explain, and to control. Right. Buddhism is really not so concerned with any of these things, except insofar as our explanations help to serve um, us to move toward the end point of our investigation, which is liberation, right? Freedom from suffering. So it makes for um, a highly empirical enterprise, but not a particularly scientific one. And the endpoint. Another way to talk about this is soteriology. Do people know this term? It. it um, I hope I get this right, but it really refers to a, a whole, the whole notion of everything—history or intellectual trends—leading to a particular endpoint. And that endpoint is, in this case, uh, awakening. Right. It is liberation. That's the purpose of Buddhist psychology. And if its teachings are often frustratingly inconsistent or even contradictory, it's only because uh, as a teacher the Buddha was interested in what worked, what actually helped people to move along the path, even if there was some logical inconsistency. So um, if psychology, scientific psychology is a little like cartography, you know, making a map. You know, the scientific approach might be to fly an airplane over the territory or to stand on a hilltop and then kind of draw what you see and turn it into a map, and and in that way you're really describing the landscape as well as the view permits. But if uh, if Buddhism is cartography, we're creating the map by walking on the earth, you know, by being really in close contact with the most detailed elements of the landscape. And the big view gets set aside in favor of selective attention to the qualities of the path that is traveled, which is to say, experience. Um, There's a wonderful quote here. I don't know who it's from. If we are to vanquish an enemy, it is necessary to know that enemy. And here the enemy is suffering, is dukkha. So we study it in order to become acquainted with our opponent and to be able to uh, have a fair fight. Um, I realize I didn't show the first slide, but if I can go to the next slide, I don't know how to do this. Um. Okay. I hate PowerPoint. So so this is from one of the suttas. I, I think this is a, a great way to kick off what I think we're up to here. Dukkha should be known. The cause by which dukkha comes into play should be known. The diversity in dukkha should be known. The result of dukkha should be known. The cessation of dukkha should be known. The path of practice for the cessation of dukkha should be known. Thus it has been said in reference to what was it said? And I don't understand that last sentence to save my life. But. So if we want to understand it, right? What, what do we do? But we look at it directly. For our purposes, we're going to be taking this up in a few different ways. One of them is to look at it directly. And we do this in our own introspection, right? fortified by uncommonly close attention cultivated in our meditation practice. But we're also going to talk about it, and we're going to think about it, and take it from a variety of perspectives, maybe even kind of deconstruct the concept a little bit. Um, So how do we study this? In the Buddhist view, the best way is to study it directly through trained attention, right? relying on direct knowing, particularly in meditation. Um, And as we know from experience, even this direct knowing, or our effort to know it directly, Without the mediation of our ideas and our concepts, this is pretty hard because our concepts are constantly, constantly pressuring us to make sense of and explain and construe, right? And in the process of doing that, we may have insight, but it's of a bit of a limited nature because we're back in the domain of concepts rather than into direct experience, right? And because our, the way that we language experience tends to be so habitual, You know, we wind up traveling in the same circles. No sooner does something arise in experience than it presents with a perception and a label and often a judgment with regard to its feeling. And then we're off to the races. We've actually taken our leave of the immediate experience itself. So it's really difficult, I would suggest, to know things just as they are, right? To know experience in its rawest form, separate from how... We engage with it. Um, I'd heard the description once of uh, the impossibility of humans encountering experience much like a lizard lying on a flat rock in the sun might. I mean, you can imagine the lizard just kind of unmoving, feeling the heat. And we really have a very difficult time doing that, you know, maybe for, for more than moments at a time. is a mute switch and it's not muting the video okay um so we're gonna move in and out of direct observation and even as we're getting into a lot of verbal material um, i encourage you to stay as best you can grounded in your experience grounded in your body you know returning to that felt sensation we have the invitation to do that in this setting because it is such a protected and safe environment and we have an opportunity to do this in a way that is uh, often not available to us in daily life so um the eightfold path you, you know this i'm going to assume people have basic knowledge about buddhist concepts you know how it kind of is commonly thought to roll up into three categories of sila, samadhi, and panya, right? Anybody unfamiliar with this? So um, in the Eightfold Path, um, and I'm not going to try to name them all, but basically it's understood that some of the elements have to do with correct conduct, right? Correct speech, right livelihood, right action. Um, then there is right concentration, which is to say right mindfulness and concentration per se. And that's this is mind training. And then the third is panya, which is wisdom, uh, right aim and um, right understanding. And I had always imagined that panya, this notion of wisdom, was the end product of all of our practice. You know, you, you get your um, ethical life in order, you train the mind, and then at some point wisdom naturally emerges. And I, I think this does happen. This is sort of in some respects, it's not linear like this, but um, I mentioned this because I had heard uh, Thanissaro, who you, some of you may be familiar with, talking about Panya in a bit of a different way. He said it's not just that kind of intuitive wisdom that, uh, that develops out of our meditation practice. It's also um, intellectual study. Right? It is digging deep into the material of a particular tradition. Um, first, so that you've read it and you're familiar with it. Uh, secondly, to the point that it becomes quite familiar. And then, finally, you, one enters it so deeply that at some point there's a bit of an aha. You know, it's like when the floor drops and you, and you drop into it a little bit more deeply. And you see this when you engage in any particular field of study. You know, when it all starts to become really um, embracing. And I imagine this is true if you're studying economics or studying psychoanalysis. Uh, I had a friend who was doing um, Talmud study, and he was really excited one day because these teachings, which kind of seemed um, esoteric and a bit overly intellectual, at some point something opened up for him, and he saw that there was a kind of a deeper understanding to be found in it. So that's also part of our Panya, part of our study is to begin to examine and use what is available to us uh, to begin to deconstruct and and understand our own experience. Yeah, so we're going to try to bring this kind of reflective attitude and approach to this intimate issue of uh, suffering, of uh, unsatisfactoriness. And we can't talk about these matters without using language and concepts, Uh, which means that we're investigating not just suffering directly, but also our ideas about it and our perceptions about it, because they're not trivial. I'm going to be making the case for how important it is for us to begin to illuminate how it is that we're um, understanding these experiences. What is it that we're bringing to them? Because experientially, until we can look really closely, the way that we understand something becomes more or less inseparable from that experience. You know? Someone cuts you off in traffic and you're suddenly angry. Well, the, the sense of it is, I'm angry because of what that individual did. Right? They're inseparable because we haven't learned to look closely enough to distinguish. You know, the inner reactivity is distinct from what is actually happening out there. And indeed, most of what we know about the world, the inner world and the outer world um, is through the mediation of our concepts and our symbols. We can't really use conceptual thinking to reach direct knowledge, or you know, as Kant put it, the thing in itself you know um, We never really know what's out there. what we know is our cognition of it, our perception of it so In Buddhism, this is recognized, right? You know, the parable of the finger pointing at the moon. And we understand that, you know, we're admonished repeatedly never to mistake the finger for the moon. Um, Or, you know, another parable that's often used is this notion that when you come to the river, uh, you build a raft, and you cross the river on the raft, and then you don't carry the raft around with you. So these concepts are tremendously useful, and at some point we also need to understand that they're not to be mistaken for the thing that they're trying to describe. So we're talking about um, these concepts, even the Buddhist concepts, as arrows. Not of ultimate, uh, no ultimate truth, uh, only utility. But it's interesting, in my mind, to uh, know what those arrows look like. Uh, what are our ideas? What are the ideas that we're holding about ourselves and, and our ideas about suffering? And what do they tell us about ourselves, both as individuals and as a species? Because we can't help but make sense of things or try to make sense of things. And there are consequences for those arrows. There are consequences for the way that we think about things. You know, Those of you who are clinicians know, for instance, when someone is characteristically blaming of the rest of the world for their own difficulty and how difficult that is to work with, right? But to some degree, you know, we've all got our accounts of why this is happening to me. And very often they're unexamined. So we want to look at the consequences of those arrows and um, because of the direction they suggest and so we'll do that when we're here in the classroom and we'll do it on the cushion uh, to try to 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 try to distinguish all of our conceptualization from what is actually happening and to try to see beneath our cognizing. Um, there was a philosopher by the name of Ernst Kassir who wrote several volumes on the philosophy of symbolic forms. And he spent a lot of time one volume was all about language and how language shapes experience. Another was on science as a language and the way that it structures and organizes the world. He did another on myth as a way of making sense. (laughs) And there, too, it wasn't because we were going to find out what reality looked like through the lens of these things, but rather because as human beings, this is how we operate. Right? We operate through all of these various languages that give shape to this, uh, what is it, Uh, a Rorschach of experience, and suddenly it becomes coherent. And the coherence that we experience or that we feel is to some degree collective, right? I mean, we share a spoken language. We share a culture to a degree, but we also carry so many unique conditioning factors, the culture of our particular family of origin, the conditioning and the factors that arise from our own genetic structure, from this period in history that we're living in. Right. Um, <clears throat> where was I going okay so in the coming days we'll talk about not just suffering but how we make sense of it right? how we think about it because how we make sense and what stories we tell ourselves about what's wrong here are really consequential right they're going to dictate how we act you know if we think that the sole obstacle to our happiness is a bad marriage or a bad politician in charge, right, or we don't like the way our appearance is, it's, it's going to result in, you know, what? Serial relationships, assassination, or plastic surgery, you know? And so on. So... <clears throat> Dharma gates. Dharma gates are, you know, what's the hook? What, what got you interested in practice? And um, I think for all of us, there are many, many of them. Um, for me, there were, there were a few. One of them was, um, I, I won't be talking about this very much, but it was a, the teachings in Buddhism about the nature of the self. Uh, As an adolescent, reading about how the self is the problem just made real good sense to me. And my misreading of the literature that said you could somehow, that the self is an illusion and therefore one could be rid of it, this was exciting news, you know. I think I misunderstood much of what I was reading. And honestly, the entire enterprise of being rid of self has not gone very well. Um, But this was a Dharmagate. But another has been... um, obviously the wish to not suffer you know you read it in the in some of this literature about people's awakening experiences and in my fantasy it would be possible to become enlightened and all of one's personal problems would be solved right we would i, I would become you know perfect right no problems you know this is a fantasy of course Um. Yeah, so one dimension that has unfolded for me over the years, however, has been um, what I might say is a certain growing lack of confidence in my own confidence. And that is to say that as I've continued to practice, um, I don't trust my ideas in the way that I once did. I have some growing suspicion that the things, the ideas that I hold precious and that I cling to are not ultimately to be trusted. And it's not because I have managed to uh, illuminate them all, but because I have understood that over time, one can see how one is prone to taking up fixed positions that are almost always false and almost always limiting. So with continued practice, I've become really suspicious of what I think and lest I wind up clinging too tightly to it. And, and I think this is a direct relationship to practice because when we're meditating, right, you know, the breath, breath, thinking, 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 breath, thinking, thinking. And at some point, you know, one gets anchored in the breath, and even if for a little while, thoughts arise, but they're not the foreground. We haven't grabbed onto them. We haven't invested in them. They come and they go. And then one begins to see that, Thoughts are extraordinarily ephemeral, right? There's like, there's nothing there. Where do they come from? Where do they go? You know, there's almost nothing more ephemeral than a thought. And yet we treasure our thoughts and our ideas to the point that we are willing to fight for them, right? With continued practice and with a recognition of the way in which taking up any fixed position Is actually a source of difficulty. We begin naturally, I think, to loosen our grip a little bit on our devotion to our most treasured ideas. So that's part of the spirit, too, in this whole notion of investigating. You know, what is it that we really think is going on here? You know? So um, I think as a product of practice, I've been a bit less seduced into identification with my thoughts and ideas. Which I think have loosened a little bit by degree, um, with, of course, the least personal of these, the first to go. you know, there are certain things that we are pretty intimately tied to, like me, you know, I am, and how I'm very real to myself. These are often the, the things that are most recalcitrant, but um, you know, we can begin to see that the things that really annoyed us really don't have to. You know, because we begin to understand that less and less of our experience is actually personal. Less than we had thought. And it begins, begins to point the way to understanding that ultimately um, maybe nothing, nothing whatsoever is personal up to and including our own death. Right? I mean, that's a steep one. But at least in principle. right? And this is kind of promising. And I think there's freedom in this. There's freedom in the notion that we don't have to be bound by all of our previously uh, treasured fixations and so on. But it also leads uh, to a degree of, um, I don't know, dizziness, right? Because what are we to hold on to? Our fixation and our attachment to so many of our identifications and our ideas and our treasured uh, golden calves is exactly the thing that we... um, invest in, in order to not feel lost and dizzy, to know where we are, to know what is true and what is right and where I am and who's wrong in this equation. When one begins to loosen one's grip, uh, where do we stand? So this this is groundlessness, and it is dizzying. It's not an easy thing to adjust to, I think. Um, I do remember hearing a meditation teacher say of... Um, he, he, she had been spoken to by a yogi who said that when he started meditating um, he felt like he had uh, jumped out of an airplane without a parachute and that it was terrifying until he realized there was no ground right? so this is interesting it's not that oh no we found his parachute or uh, he had a soft landing it was that there, he wasn't going to collide with anything as he began to relinquish uh, control um, okay, so back to Dharmagate. So um, I have some academic background in cultural anthropology, and that's another lens through which one can begin to see that all that much of what we take for granted is really cultural, is really cultural conditioning. So many of the concepts that we enjoy, including the concepts about what it means to be a human being, right? You know, how do we develop? What does it mean to be normal? What does it mean to be abnormal? You know, how do things go awry? Why do we suffer? Our culture carries so many different explanations that are available for pulling out of the air and applying to our experience. Um, you know, having these ideas, there's no harm done particularly except when we attribute to those ideas more validity than they merit. Um, and I think this is a way that we begin to speak about breaking attachments to the the kanda, you know, the kandas uh, of sankara of um, formations. But I'm going I'm not gonna get ahead of myself. So our topic is a way to extend the deconstruction of our understanding, not necessarily to arrive at a new position, but to enable us to hold our positions with a little bit more circumspection, a little bit more loosely. Right, and get us to begin to question our uh, our assumptions and our experience just a bit. Um, I had a, a neighbor uh, once who, whose car had a. I haven't thought of this in years. Had a faded bumper sticker on it, and the bumper sticker said, "Have you questioned the context of your experience today?" And and I mentioned this to one of my clinical supervisors at the time who so loved this expression that he wound up, um, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, he took out an ad on the front page of the New York Times in tiny little print. Did Anybody ever see these? Sometimes at the bottom of a column, you wouldn't even notice it, in microscopic font, you could have a little ad on the front page. And he took out an ad that said, have you questioned the context of your experience today? (laughs) So with all this in mind, we're going to take up the topic of suffering from a number of different perspectives, including a clinical view, a Buddhist view, and a few other um, perspectives insofar as they are useful. So um, let's take up the nature of understanding itself. Um, if you've got paper and pen, maybe take a moment, and I'm going to suggest that you write two or three sentences about what, human, what is human nature. It is human nature to and just see what you think, okay? Okay. Anybody want to read one or anything that you've written? Okay, I see what's going on here. Yeah.
1: Individuality in a group.
0: Can you say more? What What you mean? Very good.
1: This, this distorted relationship, this uncommunicability between individuals and
0: groups, uh-huh. or between individuals. Uh-huh. Kind of an unfortunate fate of being sort of solipsistic or trapped in our separateness. Sure. Yeah. 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 Thank you.
2: The way people respond to situations. So we say it's human nature too.
0: To judge? Oh, it's human nature to judge, right? hmm Yeah. Organ- whatever it is organized around the survival. Mm. Yeah. So people will behave in ways that are fundamentally directed toward their own self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah all of you. <laughs> all at once. To love. To love. It's human nature to love.
2: Protect ourselves and also wants connection.
0: Okay. Do you people hear that? Yeah. To to protect ourselves and also to want connection. Uh-huh. Yeah. I you sort of have to sense, to react, to give meaning, and to operate. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's because you're a therapist. <laughs> you're a little bit. <laughs> yeah, maybe I, I don't know. I mean. Cecilia? Um, the natural desire to increase what is pleasant and decrease what is unpleasant in experience. That sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that some, but people heard what she said? Yeah. yeah. Um, to, wa- to want to... Well, Yeah, the whole notion of avoidance or defense. Yeah. So a
1: lot of these fundamental ones, like connection, love,
2: protection, um, I think these are all aspects of human nature. Maybe what makes it human nature as opposed to, like, that what we get from culture to these are really
1: fundamental um, and primary of human
0: experience. Good. Thanks.
1: Basically, like to find
0: purpose and belonging. To find purpose and belonging. hmm. Yeah. But we're talking about human nature, which is a generic generic notion. Yeah, Richard?
1: Capacity uh, to uh, explain our experience in ways that they sense to us and then to believe and act on
0: them as a global truth. Yeah. Lovely. <laughs> Did people catch that? Oh. That's like right downworthy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, actually, I've been told once that one should never say, um, oh, that was a really good question or a good comment, because then you have to say it to everybody. So that comment was just as good, but no better uh, than any of the others. Yeah. Anybody else?
1: I just thought I, I laughed because I go, what is it? It's only what I've been told it is.
0: People hear this? Cecilia is saying, you know, we only know what we've been told. Who knows what is truly human nature? Uh, Well, what I'm kind of getting at with this particular exercise is that um, basically to be human is to try to make sense of our experience, right? there's a Taoist uh, expression that I heard, which is that if you took five stones and tossed them in the air, they drop to the ground, and wherever they land, you're going to see a pattern. You know, there's a way that we're going to impose some kind of order. And it is human nature, one could suggest, then to make sense or to cognize. And one of the things that we are trying to make sense of is that that is the actual experience uh, of making sense of human nature, right? That almost everybody has some idea of this, some way of understanding the person next to them and why they act the way they do, what their motivations are, you know? And, of course, the kind of sense that we're going to make is going to be heavily influenced by our experience. You know, what would a police officer say about human nature? How does a police officer perceive people? I imagine as either law-abiding or law-breaking, or maybe all law-breaking but simply those who have yet to be discovered, you know? or a prison guard, right? Um, Several times in my career, I contemplated working in the prisons, and I wound up not doing it because I was concerned with how I would come to feel about people, you know? Because everything I'd been told about going into the prisons was to be really cautious about the likelihood that you will be manipulated. And so those who are working in that environment have to absorb that, right? And you come to have a particular view of of human nature. So a taxi driver probably has developed all kinds of ideas, or a soldier, a capitalist, a psychoanalyst. We've all got ideas, even even if we can't necessarily articulate them fully, you know, to some degree of elaboration. Sometimes they're very well elaborated, sometimes not so well. And many of these ideas are provided by culture, but um, I won't go down that road just now. To be a human then is to have an idea of human nature, to have a concept. And that our conclusions about what humans are like may be shared, you know, culturally shared within a society. And they can also be highly idiosyncratic, you know. For instance, arising out of very different early childhood experiences. Uh, For instance, are people trustworthy? Well, I imagine you get a really different answer from someone who has uh, suffered early childhood abuse and has learned that people are fundamentally untrustworthy, as opposed to someone who has grown up in a safe and secure household, who has come to believe that people are basically safe and honest and trustworthy, right? So some of these ideas are shared broadly, and many of them are extremely idiosyncratic as well. Maybe you can kind of see where I'm headed with this. Some of our ideas might be informed or a product of education. In a clinical training, you know, we are taught a particular way of thinking about people, um, which is basically through the lens of abnormal psychology, right? And so nobody who has ever been trained uh, in mental health can avoid, some at least at some point in their training, perceiving themselves and other people through the lens of what's normal and what's not, you know, people diagnose themselves suddenly. Oh, I've got that. I've got that. Right. So those are very formal and they're real rather deliberate efforts to try to train people into seeing human experience through particular lenses. And most of us have ideas about our own motivations and about other, mot- other people's motivations, about people's basic goodness, about the lack thereof, and a, certainly a sense of how we think others people ought to be, right? You know, I don't like how you dress. I don't like how you drive. Why do you chew with your mouth open? You know, how can you raise your children like this? You know, we are constantly leveling all kinds of judgments that are based on often... Um, ex- implicit and unexamined ideas about what we think is normal and what human nature is like. So a lot of our accounts may have very little correlation to what's actually out there. You know, They may accord to some degree, but not necessarily very well. When it comes to understanding our own inner world, um, I wrote here, what do we take as real? I don't know what I meant here. Okay, Um, so a scientific view, say social scientific view of humans tends to point to this idea that there is something universal and innate and true about human nature, right? And that the purpose of our scientific inquiry is to kind of get to it, to try to figure out what's universal. Um, It's pretty difficult to do because in order to investigate these questions, you have to start with some concepts or some constructs, and those themselves are already carving out of the vast universe of experience some narrow set of understandings that allow us to ask pertinent questions. I'm sorry about that sentence. That should be shot, but... um, (laughs) So a scientific view suggests we can align our knowledge against some objective reality, you know? Now, maybe there is an objective reality. If I told you that my aspiration was to become a fashion model, you would be right to conclude that was delusional, right? So there are things that are obviously just kind of out there and that, that are they're that quite wrong. Um, but, you know, Freud, who thought psychoanalysis was a scientific method, thought that there was such a thing as a true underlying human nature and that the scientific method, which is, he said he thought his, that psychoanalysis was a scientific method, could actually arrive at the truth and that there were certain universal truths that applied to everyone, even if they were really masked. I don't think this is held so universally anymore. I mean, there was a time that anybody coming out of uh, classical psychoanalytic training, everybody believed in the universality of the Oedipal complex. And they were able, to, uh, through their training, ultimately to discover this in everybody they met. And suddenly it was revealed as absolutely true, right? It's just a lens. Um, and indeed, actually, um, there's a line in the interpretation of dreams where Freud was so proud of himself that he had discovered the true meaning of dreams, you know, which had to do with wish fulfillment. And indeed, he was so pleased with himself that he thought that, um, that they should have a cornerstone in the building where his office was that says, on this date, Dr. Sigmund Freud discovered the true meaning of dreams. He was so convinced that there was an objective reality out there that could be um, ascertained. So this is, you know, he was coming out of a scientific tradition that, that actually said there is a reality and that if we had the right methods, we'd be able to kind of carve that out and understand what it looks like. But um, we know from social psychology how many of our ideas have been conditioned by countless influences that lie outside of our awareness. You know, I don't know how many doctoral dissertations have been done with experimental conditions where you get people to behave one way or a different way depending on, you know, what's been offered to them. Um, For example, judges will hand out sentences to defendants differently based on the time of the day, you know. Or that altruism, acts of altruism are influenced by observing other people acting altruistically in the immediate, uh, in the preceding moment. Um, And then, you know, for instance, there's a lot of work that shows how our interpretation of our own emotions um, is heavily influenced by the particular set. Um, So there was some research by Schachter and Singer. This is pretty old old research now. But here's the basic paradigm. Um, They enlisted a group of people to be a part of some research, and the subjects came, and they waited in the waiting room waiting to be brought into a room for some kind of exam. But the actual research was that half of the people there had been given um, a kind of a sugar pill that was inactive, and others had been given something that was um, uh, activating. You know, I don't know what it was, some maybe a caffeinated thing or something. These are the experimental conditions. I don't know if they were all together. And then um, in one experimental condition, there would be someone in the waiting room Uh, they'd be waiting a long time to be called in. And in one experimental condition, someone in the waving room is um, getting angry. Why are they making us wait so long? You know, getting really pissed off. And then in another experimental condition, they had someone who was a comedian and was just entertaining everybody and really bringing up the energy. And what they found was that the people who had um, taken whatever the... uh, the energy lifting, you know, the stimulant, wound up having a strong emotional reaction, and those who did not had a lesser emotional reaction. And the way they understood that emotional reaction was based on what the shill was doing. So the people who had gotten something that was activating and were around the angry person felt angry, and the others felt giddy and happy. Right? Anyway, all of this is just a way of saying that we think we know what's going on in here, but it is due to all manner of influences that we're often inattentive to. Um, Okay. A lot of the ideas that we hold about human nature are held in culture, you know. Uh, Every culture or most cultures have pretty detailed ethnographies of illness, they have ways of explaining how people become ill, why they become ill, and what's to be done about it. Um, a lot of the concepts that we hold about what is normal and about the nature of suffering and of illness are are to be found in our great traditions, you know, and they find our way into our ethno-psychologies. And what I mean by this is that a lot of the concepts that we hold in our um, formal theories, like Abnormal psychology, for instance. Or the categories that we're going to find in the DSM, the Catalog of Diagnostic Conditions, we think they're somehow scientific, that they're a natural reflection of the world, but they're really traceable more to historical and cultural origins that have now become um, embedded in a scientific tradition, and now we take them to be a product of something objective when they're really not at all. A lot of our folk psychologies then become elevated into scientific hypotheses. Anyway, the big point here is that we're constantly making sense of our experience and we're constantly explaining it to ourselves. And the same can be said, of course, about suffering. We don't suffer in a vacuum. Um, Nietzsche said, um, what really raises one's indignation against suffering is not suffering intrinsically but the senselessness of suffering, right? So we're not just suffering, but if we don't have a good explanation, now there's this indignance as well. We want to know why. Why do I feel like this? Why me, you know, if we feel like we're being victimized? Um, Even the whole notion of victimization is a bit of an interpretation in many respects. If I feel this way, it's because somebody has done something to me, right? And, and you know people like this, right? If something is wrong, someone is to be blamed here. Having no explanation is worse than having an explanation, even if that explanation is delusional, right? If we have no explanation, no way to account for our own unhappiness and our own suffering, then we add helplessness to the mix, if we have an explanation, whether it is correct or incorrect, it has the great virtue of binding anxiety because at least we have the illusion of control. So I have another slide here. Um, okay, I don't expect you to read this carefully. This, is, this isn't new research. This is um, 1963. Um, <laughs> But it suits my purposes to use it. So um, a fellow named Sacher, this was looking at a number of um, military folks returning from active service who were in their first uh, psychotic breaks. And what they did was to measure various blood assays, um, catecholamine, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, um, things that are roughly associated with stress, and could be understood maybe as a stand in for anxiety. And these were people who were um, pretty floridly psychotic. And back in the day, they could do things like withhold treatment for scientific purposes. This can't be done any longer. But the, the gist of this is that what they identified a number of um, trends in the course of their psychotic thinking. And at first, when it was, it was there was what they were calling turmoil. And if you've ever worked with anybody who was actively psychotic, it's turmoil, right? It's like, um, like, like their mind is a TV set, and somebody's changing the channel every couple of seconds, and making sense is just out of the question. And for those individuals, these, um, uh, you know, the epinephrine and so on were were through the roof. They were clearly highly stressed. But then, what would happen is, um, untreated. They might move into um, a fixed delusion. They go from being floridly psychotic to now having a kind of a paranoid delusion. Like, oh, I'm feeling this way because the CIA has set up a listening post in my spleen, you know? Or the mafia is trying to abduct me, or some kind of implausible explanation. Now, these are not helpful delusions, but what is interesting is that during this stage of the course of an untreated psychosis, the level of stress, as measured by um, cortisol and, and so on, goes down. It's like they have an explanation when their anxiety has been bound. Right? Now, what then would happen is, uh, if one then applies an antipsychotic, and if it should be effective against the fixed delusion, which is not, not, doesn't always work, You know, fixed delusions are often pretty, pretty tightly held. But for those for whom it did work, they became um, much more depressed, and the cortisol levels shot through the roof again, because they were now denied the interpretation they had of their experience, uh, and now they were left again without a without a tangible explanation. So you know what clinicians will generally tend to do. is to try to re-socialize people in the midst of a psychotic break to understand, as best they can, that it's an illness, right? Um, Which is maybe not necessarily a welcome understanding because the the delusion might be so, so tightly held. Um, But the delusion, the delusional interpretation of why someone is suffering does not lead to constructive action, Right? if you think that the neighbor across the courtyard is sending bad thoughts to you, you know, maybe your response then is violence, you know, or is to try to, uh, to destroy the person who you think is manipulating you. It is a much better interpretation. One that offers more possibility of growth to, to be socialized into the notion that it's because of an illness, you know, chemical imbalance, whatever you wish to call it. Anyway, um, the point of this is that any explanation, even one that is patently impossible or even delusional, helps to bind anxiety. And this begins to help understand the fierceness with which we will defend our positions, you know? delusional, psychotic, or or not. The alternative is that we face a certain kind of collapse of meaning and a return to a potentially terrifying chaos and senselessness. And so very quickly, we scramble to try to make new sense of whatever it happens to be. You know, I I haven't really thought about this, but it makes sense to me that this may be part of the popularity of... um, QAnon, you know? I mean, I don't know why one goes to the implausible over the, over the plausible. but Anyway, um, so it's difficult or distressing to suffer without an account for our suffering, even if the account may be false or impossible because it offers the idea or maybe the illusion of some kind of control. Once we've named something, we have this notion, you know, Um, okay, maybe you've got a child who's completely out of control and you don't know what's going on and then you take them to a therapist and the therapist says, it's oppositional defiant disorder. Oh! (laughs) He has oppositional defiant disorder. What does that mean? (laughs) But the very fact that there is now a label and a diagnostic category now begins to offer some possibility because it's now a medical condition even though in fact there's nothing explanatory in that at all it's strictly descriptive Um, anyway so for our purposes i'm going to focus mostly on psychological suffering not so-called first arrows you know first second arrow um if if you're not familiar with that parable I'll, i'll come back to that later um staying with psychological suffering is a little tricky because even physical suffering is known in the mind, right? I mean, we know it in the body, but the mind is what is knowing it. So drawing a strict line is sometimes a little bit tricky. Um, The other thing I want to warn you about is um, a little bit of um, intellectual woolly-headedness that I'm going to commit, and I want to call myself out on it before you do. And that is that for the purpose of um, the rest of our time together, I'm going to begin to kind of conflate um, ordinary human suffering with um, mental illness. And in some respects, it's legitimate to do so because they are all on the continuum of suffering. they are different forms of suffering. I think what's a little bit um, intellectually dishonest about this is that... um, There are ways in which major mental illness is probably best understood as illness and as a medical condition, Um, but you're going to see I'm going to kind of blur these because it suits my purposes. Um, It's not clear that everybody who who is in the throes of mental illness are necessarily suffering. I don't know. And um, there are certainly critiques that suggest that mental illness doesn't exist except as a kind of a social construct. People may remember this from their graduate school days. Um, Having worked with individuals with major mental illness uh, who warranted hospitalization or even um, asylum, I don't think that all major mental illness is on a neat continuum with ordinary human suffering, though I will kind of pretend... uh, it is for for various purposes that you'll see. So we're motivated to provide, to bring meaning to what is otherwise potentially senseless. And that I'm going to suggest that we can clump our efforts to make sense across a couple organizing dimensions. One of them would be that our explanations of suffering um, are either formal um, or informal. So the formal we could say is... um, when we have some deliberately crafted and codified system of understanding within a particular tradition. tradition. So formal would certainly be diagnostic categories in medicine. right? Or the categories may be of sin in religion. Um, The Abhidhamma has all manner of classifications as well. And then this is to be compared with the informal, which is to say they may be um, not so systematized. Uh, things that are just uh, kind of available within the culture but haven't been codified in some code book. The other rubric here that I want to suggest is um, that some of our explanations of suffering are collective. They're kind of broadly shared within the culture. Um, Maybe they're offered by religion. Maybe they're offered by medicine or psychology or whatever um, versus those that are idiosyncratic, you know, those that um, we invent for ourselves in the privacy of our own minds, the kind of peculiar explanations that we can invoke and that don't seem to align necessarily with anybody else's. Um, in my work as a clinical psychologist, I get to hear these, which is really, you know, it's so interesting to me. I, I mean, this to me is like, how is it in there? You know, what? how do you understand this? because there seem to be um, truly an endless variety of ways that we tend to make sense of our experience and explain it to ourselves. It is uh, such a creative act. Um, It's quite remarkable. Um, How are we on time? Have I worn you out yet? Uh, We we will stop no later than nine, because I'm sure people are tired. Um I'm just trying to figure out what's a good stopping place here. I know. Anybody have any comments or questions? <laughs> Michael Yeah. So I am going to spend some time defining suffering, but the thing is that any effort to define it winds up just revolving around a bunch of synonyms, right? I mean, it's like uh, Justice, who was it, who said about pornography, I can't can't define it, but I can tell you when I see it. We know suffering when we see it. And I will go over some of the descriptions, particularly in the Buddhist literature of suffering. Um, but... Um, I don't know that one can um, break it down because it's there's something elemental, right? What we can break down is our the language and the ideas that we bring to it. The first part of your question, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, I if I understood what you were asking, I don't intend to go there. No, I which is true? Know. Which is a uh, superior? Well, Well, I think you, you've, you've touched on the, you know, the key dimension there. How is it working for you? You know uh, Any kind of account that we wind up offering for ourselves is going to have some benefit, like every you know one of the things that Otto Ronk talked about he was one of Freud's uh, inner circle. He talked about how neurosis was um, an enormously creative act, because it was a solution to a problem. And he likened neurotics to artists, in fact, because of what a creative solution is. That doesn't mean that it's entirely effective. Right? Um, yeah, I'm kind of losing the rest of your question. But um, yeah, I think it comes down to does it work for you? Every, every defense has some cost associated with it. Right? We all make accommodations. Uh, yeah, I could spin out here, but I'm going to stop myself. Any other comments or thoughts uh, up until now? Yeah.
1: Well, I've, I've recently come up with a solution, not a solution, uh, um, a reason why I'm suffering. And um, I'm going to understand it, I don't know, if I ever, if whatever, but I allow myself that space of, I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's working for me,
0: right? Right. Well, that's, see, that's wonderful. And thank you for the illustration. That, did people hear this? Yeah. Yeah, see, this, I'm, I'm hoping we have opportunity to kind of share in this domain as well, because we, we're all generating constantly all of these accounts for ourselves and you know we'll certainly spend most of our time on on the buddhist understanding um and i don't quite know what to make of it because it is the raft it is the arrow and yet it seems to me like the one that i have most embraced and that makes the most sense is it true well in this model whether or not something is true is ultimately not dependent upon outcome research its truth value is only proven in the laboratory of our own experience. When something is known to be so beyond the point of negation, right? this is the highest standard of truth, then we know if something is true and it honestly doesn't matter if it is collectively shared or understood. And the Buddha was quite clear about that, right? He insisted that we find out for ourselves and not to take his word for it because his word wasn't going to do a darn thing for us to get us free. Anything else? Because I can keep yammering. Well, I'll, I'll, okay, I'll yammer. I warned you. You, you hadn't out. Um. I guess I, yeah.
2: Maybe because I'm still in the thick of my graduate studies. Um, it's developmental, but <laughs> I guess I was wondering when you were talking about like the difference between mental illness and suffering, and how you know you're going to conflate them here, but that there is a difference. I was just thinking about like how is
0: says right what is suffering is he cites illness, aging, illness, right, death.
2: So when you were saying that it's what, different, I guess I just stopped
0: Well, one of the things I'm going to talk a little bit about and probably not tonight is the whole notion of um, illness, mental illness or mental suffering as a disorder, as a medical disorder. Um, which we take for granted. We take for granted the validity of this notion that um, mental suffering and mental illness should be treated in, the, in a way commensurate with somatic illness, right? And that took a while for that to be embraced. Uh, and I don't mean terribly long, because actually I think psychiatry was the second medical specialty. Um, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself the whole issue of what is illness is really tricky because um, maybe, uh, are you familiar with the work of Arthur Kleinman, who is a medical anthropologist? Uh, He provided a really useful distinction between illness and disease. He said, you know, disease is what's happening more or less at a tissue level, the kind of thing you're going to find in an MRI or in a blood test or in an X-ray, for instance. But the disease is... Um, how we occupy, how we live and experience the disease. And they're not one and the same. Pardon? No. Illnesses. No. Illnesses. Yeah. No, wait, illness is, yeah. Illness is how we make sense of it, how we experience it. And there are so many factors that influence it that are beyond the primary disease process. Um, and so, again, that's informed by meaning and the meanings that we bring in a way that is often not... not examined you know
1: pain is interesting in this aspect too
0: yeah pain pain say more Absolutely. Uh, uh, Another example of what you're saying is um, you have a back pain. Oh, that's unpleasant. You know, I wonder what that is. But let's say you suffered a bad back injury years ago. When that back pain reappears, it's not just, oh, here's a new back pain. It's, it's back. I have re-injured myself. And suddenly the suffering associated with that Is no longer exclusively the pain itself, but the immediate visceral reaction to it, born of association and memory and expectation, that now I have done serious damage and it's going to continue for years, right? Much worse. People may be familiar with the literature on this that once people's disability claims are resolved, their symptoms clear up. That as long as they're uh, open, you know about this, Michael. Michael. Yeah, that's different from the, some the literature that I was familiar with, which says that people will remain in pain so long as their disability claim is unresolved.
1: Yeah, but the secondary benefit is so important yeah. that even if you go to the pain clinic and you, you, you treat treated and everything, the prognosis is much, mm-hmm. less, much, uh, much, much less positive than if, if you wait it out and come after. Yeah. There are no secondary gains. Yeah. hmm
0: It's 9 o'clock. I'm sure everybody is tired. So let's wrap it up for tonight. Um, The schedule. So we we meet in the hall tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning, wake up at 6.30.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.